Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. Uh, Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. Uh, Today we have something really exciting. We have a husband and wife literary conversation. I think that's a a first for us. Um, So today we are featuring Lori Lansons in conversation with her husband, Mylon Chalov. Uh, And they're going to be talking about her new book, which is a novel called This Little Light. I'm going to go ahead and introduce them, and then we'll let them take it away. All right. Lori Lansons worked as a screenwriter before she burst onto the literary scene in 2002 with her first novel, Rush Home Road. Published in 11 countries, it received rave reviews around the world and went on to become a bestseller in a number of territories. Her follow-up novel, The Girls, was also an international success and a New York Times bestseller. Her third novel, The Wife's Tale, is currently in development as a feature film. Her fourth novel, The Mountain Story, debuted on the bestseller list in Canada, received rave reviews, and sold internationally as well. This Little Light, her latest novel, has been optioned for TV by Universal. Congratulations, Lori. Mylon Chalov and Lori Lansons have been married for 35 years, produced two children together, and they've been supporting each other in artistic endeavors since they met in their early 20s. Back in Toronto, where they lived before immigrating to the U.S., they made short films and ran a theater company together. They've lived in California for 14 years and became citizens in 2015. Mylon is a producer-director who's worked in the film industry for decades and directed hundreds of hours of TV shows like 24, Dexter, Prison Break, and recently he was a director-producer on Station 19 for ABC. Welcome to the program, Lori and Mylon. Thanks, Maddie. It's great to be here, and thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Delighted. So, so are we. So are we, yeah. So I am going to start with this, this short reading. Um, do, you, do, do you think we should give a little uh, synopsis of the story? First? I think that would be wise. <laughs> so Rory, this, this book is set in 2024. Uh, just a little stone's throw into the future. And Rory Miller is a 16-year-old, very privileged girl who's asking a lot of questions. And she's grown up in in, uh, Calabasas, California, and she goes to this uh, Christian school. And on this night, this place uh, takes place over 48 hours in the year 2024. And on this night, she and her best friend, Feliza Fee, have been accused of setting a bomb at a purity ball. Uh, 
uh, which is common in 2024. So Rory has a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas. And while she's hiding in a shed with her best friend Fee, escaping capture, trying to escape capture, she's blogging her entire story sort of in real time. And this is a, an excerpt uh, from her musings on happiness. And imagine this is being uh, read in the voice of a 16-year-old girl. Happy. I hate that word. I want to stab that word. That word offends me the way curses offend people who don't swear. The way taking the Lord's name in vain offends the Christians, even though half of them do it anyway. Happy. It's a bullshit word. Happy is the word equivalent of Valentine's Day. Aunt Lily said that. She told me her ex would say, people choose happy. And that would make her crazy because it's a fundamental lie. Christian people talk about happiness a lot, but that word does not appear in the Bible one time, not once. Aunt Lily's barometer for all things, first world versus third world. So people can choose happy, people can find 100 keys to happiness, 20 tips for happy, all those stupid books. Like, there are seriously more books about how people can find personal satisfaction and happiness than there are books about how people can help other people find food, and water. So basically the ingredients in that idiot book, Recipe for a Happier You, if you can't apply them to the starving mother cradling her fly-covered baby in the slave camp in West Africa, then it's bullshit, period. If all of humanity can't use the same formula for this thing called happiness, it's a big fat North American lie. Okay, I get that I'm an asshole for calling bullshit on happiness. I live in paradise, but I'm not happy. I have everything, but I feel confused and empty. I don't want to find happiness so much as I want to find purpose and love. I've been thinking, because being a prisoner in a sweltering shed really makes you think, about how I can help the world when I grow up, like how I can be an activist, a volunteer, an influential blogger, or lobbyist or something. Purpose, I get that, but happy? Aunt Lil says, happy is like a rush of propofol, that drug they put you out with before surgery. It's just so much anesthetic. Joy, though, I believe in joy. And not because that word is in the Bible. It's because joy is fleeting and real and comes without a recipe. That orgasmic feeling of celebration and communion with something outside yourself, I felt that. Never because of my fab clothes or my big house or anything material. Once upon a time, when I believed in God, I felt joy when I sang that song about how much Jesus loved me, and that other one about letting my little light shine. I felt joy with Shelley because even at half mass, my mother still boss. With Sherman, when he used to be Sherman, and I felt joy with Fee and with the Hive. Not a lot of joy in this shitty fucking shed right now. It's so hot in here, caliente. People say that's how our state got its name. Caliente Fornia, hot oven. Come on, Javier, come back already. Fee moved to sit against the wall across from me. Says she's hot and that I reek. It is. I do. She says she's not pissed at me, but she obviously is. And she says she doesn't blame me for any of this, but she does. I mean, it is my fault we're here. She's just sitting there rubbing her poor tummy, staring into space, probably hoping whatever embarrassing or incriminating thing that was in her purse melted in the blast. 
and all this angst is for nothing. Damn. In this moment, I feel like I don't even know her at all, just sitting here looking at her and, oh fuck, there's a freaking lizard in the shed. Just saw him slink under the suitcases in the corner, little green alligator lizard about the size of my palm with a very long tail that I can see poking out from where he's hiding less than a foot from Fee's bare leg. Fee is petrified of lizards. Like, how many times a day does she screech because there's a little blue skink on the path at school or a harmless gecko rep resting on the pebble tech under the chaise by one of our pools? Even if we're in the car, she screams if she sees a freaking salamander in one of the flowering bushes in the median. I love lizards. I think they are my spirit animal. In fact, if not for Fee, I'd see this little guy as some kind of good omen. If Fee sees it, she will scream. Too late. Oh, fuck. I just heard the trailer door creak open. Okay. There's a little taste of this. More, Was that long? You, you can cut this out. Was that long enough piece? Great. So we'll move on to the questions, Q&A section. Great. All right, again, my name is Mylan Chalov. I'm Lori's husband, and I'm going to ask her some questions about her brilliant new novel, This Little Light. Uh, Lori, your book set a few years into the future, as you said, in 2024 in Calabasas, California. The Christian right now has unprecedented power in your, in your book. Abortion is illegal. Purity balls, and that's where little girls uh, go to these dances where they promise their fathers that they will remain virgins until they're married. Those balls are common. Our narrator of the story is Rory Miller, a 16-year-old girl who's questioning the world around her. She's writing her story in real time in a blog. That's the conceit of this novel. Why did you choose that way into this story through Rory and the blog? Well, I wanted to reflect the, the emotional landscape of a young girl in a world like that, right? To take on this girl who's on the cusp of womanhood and reveal her inner conflicts in this kind of oppressive near future world. So Rory's grown up extremely privileged, but she knows it. And she has awareness and social conscience, but she hasn't always known what to do with it. So she's just coming to terms with that in a real way. And especially now because she's caught up in her own injustice and she's on the run with her best friend, wrongly accused of setting a bomb. So she's caught between two worlds, the one she was born into and, uh, you know, which is ruled by Christian fanatics and misogynist politics and where undocumented immigrants live in fear of deportation and detention. And then the one she imagines, this world she imagines to be better. So Rory knows that the patriarchal ideologies that she's been fed at Christian school don't really line up with what's happening around her. She sees only hypocrisy there. So she starts to question everything and that gets her into trouble. And the, the notion of the blog? Well, the story is fueled by the trigger event, uh, a bombing at a Christian school on the night of the purity ball. So Rory and her best friend Fee are accused of setting the bomb. And there's this frenzy to this trigger event that I wanted to reflect in, in real-time writing. So it's, it's also part of a, a sort of reflection of the real-time storytelling that especially young people use to communicate now, like Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. They've all changed the way people tell their stories. And um, that speaks to Lori, or sorry, Rory's language too. 
And we see language changing and evolving, and some people would say devolving, but I don't think we're in that camp. Um, and with these dialectical shifts come the common use of short forms and acronyms and casual cursing and drop words. So I wanted to reflect that too. And Rory's a writer. She's already a blogger. Um, so this, this way in made perfect sense to me. And I think in another time period, she would have sort of crazily scrawled all of this out on, you know, spiral binders that would be found later at the scene or something. She just had to get it out. She had to get it she out. She just had to get it out. Uh, and I know that you don't like to put labels on these things, but is this, is this a young adult novel? <laughs> that, I, yeah, that's, that, that question's come up a few times, but back when I was first writing it, I thought of Holden Caulfield. I remember talking to you about that then. And the idea that the, the Catcher in the Rye is, you know, an examination of youthful angst. And it, it, it's really important that that, you know, um, that I wanted to reflect that some, same sort of angst with Rory. Uh, and I didn't think of it so much as age dependent, uh, sort of like The Catcher in the Rye. I thought this is, it's a novel about a young adult um, in, this, in that spirit, but that I felt that her voice and the predicament she's in and the, the big questions she's, she's asking, the universal questions about power and you know, privilege and, and finding a footing in a world that kind of feels like crap, I, I didn't feel like that was really age dependent. I wonder if Salinger, if he was writing his book now today, would have made Holden Caulfield a blogger. Yeah, I, you right, know, I, right. I, I yeah. wonder. It's a, I, I wonder how, we'll how would he have told that story? Would he have what taken that conceit too? Yeah. It is essentially a, a diaries of blog, yeah. the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, the book is the setting, Calabasas, which many people know from uh, keeping up with. Uh, we lived there for about three years, and for 10 years prior to that, we lived in a, a the, the town beside. We didn't obviously live in that world behind the gates with the likes of Rory and, and the Hive and Kim and and, and Kendall and the rest, we didn't hang out with those stars. So why did you set your story there among the celebrities and the ultra rich and famous and the Kardashians down the road? Well, I, well, first of all, you know, I had to mention the Kardashians. That's come up a couple of times too. Um, to set the story in Calabasas and not reference the Kardashians would have, would have been bizarre. But I remember when we first moved to the area and one of the kids told us that he had a classmate who lived behind the gates, behind the gates, behind the gates. Triple gates? A, a triple, triple gates. And that's what we were saying, wait, wait, triple gates. And, you know, it was at that massive community that we, we still never been At a town that has almost no crime. <laughs> right. You need three gates. And I, I think even then I started imagining and sort of, um, you know, writing notes to myself about this place. And really what I was thinking is, how does, how does a kid grow up in a bubble like that? What happens? What do they think? How do they see the world? How can they be influenced? What is their social conscience? Um, so I think I started taking notes about that then. Uh, and this is the lightest fiction, obviously. So the Calabasas in my novel is a hyperbolized version of the real Calabasas. But Bloomberg this year called it the richest city in America. You know, Drake wrote a song about it. Hundreds of celebrities live there. And it was in the news last week with Jake Paul. Jake Paul uh, having this big party. big party, and thankfully the mayor came out and you know sort of denounced him for it. Um, but I really wanted to look at this near future world among kind of the most privileged people, but especially looking at it through um, the eyes of teenagers. And you know, because I'd been observing it and I've been curious about it for so long, and I really wanted to pluck that character out 
and reveal this kind of little light of consciousness that's growing inside this, this girl, this very privileged girl who, who starts to question her existence in a really personal way. And she starts to look at the larger, larger issues of social disparity, anti-choice laws, immigration laws, uh, everything goes into overdrive and you know, Fia and she go on the run, justly, unjustly accused of this terrifying thing. Uh, but finding the voice of Rory in this privileged setting is something that gave me hope as I was writing. I remember you started writing this book in 2015, mm -hmm. shortly after we became Americans <laughs> and shortly after Donald Trump announced that he was going to run. Uh, those things were not connected in any way. We want you guys <laughs> to know that. But why did you choose 2024 as a setting for the book that you started writing in 2015? In 2015. Well, I started writing a book, as you know, that book in reaction to that announcement because I was appalled by the idea that a person whose foul opinions about women and people of color, immigrants, I, I wasn't really shocked, but I was outraged that this person was being supported by so many, but especially by the Christian right. You know, he's being lauded and held aloft by people who are supposed to be following Christ's teachings of love and inclusion and fellowship and why the near future as opposed to the distance because I really wanted to write with a sense of urgency about something that demands urgency and um, even at that time I feared that the country could become unrecognizable in a very kind of short amount of time in the hands of a person like this and I didn't, I remember we talked about this early on when I was, you know, talking about writing, is it an allegory? Is it dystopian? Is it speculative? Who cares? And uh, just write it sort of thing. But I didn't set out really to predict a future, but to sort of independently construct one um, in this world where Christian fanatics really dominate the landscape. I, I mean, I know well that you have your own history with religious hypocrites mm -hmm. and that that figures into all of your novels, but especially in this little light, I think it really plays such a huge, obvious role. Yeah, I mean, that's where the outrage comes in, but I was raised Catholic in a small farming community in southwestern Ontario. Canada. Canada. <laughs> and our parish priest molested little girls in that community for decades. He pled guilty to 47 counts of child molestation, um, but we know there were many, many more. Um, we didn't know the extent of it then, and some girls did, uh, but we called him Father Feeler because he was so touchy with all of the girls, just sort of openly in plain sight. Girls whispered, and in middle school, I think it, when you reach middle school, his sort of intentions became clear, but it'd be years beyond that before the truth of his assaults really, really came to light. But and then years beyond that, before people would actually accept it, too. It's, it's true. It's true, because people were at that time going to um, the authorities, to their parents, and they were not believed, or their stories were dismissed, and he was moved um, frequently within parishes, within you know, for a few miles of each other, for decades. Shameful. And so that... That kind of betrayal, sort of, you know, you know, I really, I was, I was religious. I cared about God. I, I loved the teachings of Jesus, and nothing about what was happening in my life um, was was connecting. I couldn't reconcile what I was learning with what I was feeling and seeing. And I think when Donald Trump announced his candidacy, and again, the the Christians were, you know, jumping up and down, um, encouraging and supporting. That really just caused 
outrage for me. And I think that as much as anything is where Rory's voice came from. And also we've had a house full of teenagers for years. So that I mean, voice really, was so present for you. So many years. It's just like, <laughs> It just feels like because our da our daughter is two and a half years older or younger than our son. So, you know, we we reach teenager and it just it's just this protracted thing. And we're still in it. We're still in it. And teenagers <laughs> around all the time, you know, our kids and, and other kids. Strong days opinions, they strong all voices. Have such strong opinions. And I really appreciate that through them, you know, if we didn't have kids right now, I don't know how much we would understand about them because they are they're so unique, um, so different from, you know, we didn't grow up with technology, we're, we're old and, you know, uh, having them has helped me uh, stay curious and interested about youth. And, and honestly, when I hear them talk and when I hear their outrage and anger um, and resistance and protest, again, I, that, that gives me hope. Uh, a brief aside, a story, our daughter turned 18 yesterday and she told us a story. Somebody had written in and they had questioned the use of Lori in the book. She, she used the word probably quite a bit. Somebody's, it's probably, probably going to happen. Some, somebody's probably going to be P-R-O-L-L-Y. And somebody had written in and said, well, nobody would use that, that, that word. And our daughter, Natasha, who as I said, just turned 18, is very strong-willed, said, that woman doesn't know what she's talking about, so she should probably shut the fuck up. <laughs> strong opinion. Oh, I'm sorry, Skyline Books does not strong. condone the use of that language. <laughs> Strong, strong opinion. Well, let me let me let me move on. The, because in your book, the the Latinx characters in your book are largely illegal or undocumented. Mostly, they're household service workers that that Rory has some some contact with. But in this near future world, there's no DACA, and citizens, undocumented citizens, are called prosits, probationary, probationary citizens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They are fully oppressed, and their lives seem to be fairly tragic. Yeah, I. It's funny as I was writing the book. Um, and I, I actually finished the book in late 2018, which is sort of strange because, you know, I wrote it during this, this, this period and then, and then it all kept happening. Uh, so I remember wondering at one point if I had gone far enough in imagining the, you know, sort of tragic conditions that undocumented people might endure in this not so distant future in a country with a leader who is so, anti-immigrant and has this nativist agenda. So you, then the Trump administration set up the border detention camps and began to separate families and he denounced DACA and white, you know, white supremacists joined in, ban travel. Et cetera, et cetera. And then I started to wonder if I'd gone far enough. Yeah. You know, that happened a couple of times where well, like, I, I, I thought I was imagining sort of the worst, um, but- Let's yeah. hope that the best happens this fall yeah. and that we don't have to yeah. keep wondering. Um, Obviously, the end of your book, the, the conclusion is very, there's a twist at the end that I'm not going to, I'm not going to share, but it, it caused me just to sit there stunned and sobbing for a long time. What, what feeling do you hope that readers go away with at, at the end of the book? Not just feelings, but, you know, ideas. What, what do you think? Um, well, I guess it, it's always a strange question to answer. You know, you write this book and, and what do you hope that people leave with? It's not something that you're you're working toward during the writing of the book. Like, I just want to get to that point. Um, it's something I guess you think about later. What do I hope? And I suppose I hope that um, readers hear Rory's question and maybe that gives rise to questions of their own. Uh, I hope that they find notion or sort of hope as I did in the notion that this 
this privileged young girl is trying to sort things out, calling out her own hypocrisy and bullshit, and that she's trying to do better and wants to do better. And that's what I see growing in young people, I think, from every walk of life. Um, and, and then again, the end of the book is the point of the book. But in some ways, what you're saying that people want to do better and all that, I think that is sort of part of our social sort of feeling right now that yeah. we're, we're all, or most of us anyway, are striving to do better and figure out a way to, yeah. you know, to improve uh, yeah. ourselves and our society as a whole. And I think yeah. that's what the BLM thing is about. Yes. And that's what, you know, just trying to be the best that we can be and trying yes. to create, you know, the nation that Abraham Lincoln spoke about. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, I think that's all part of it. It's, yeah. it's interesting too, as outsiders that you're afforded a certain distance from a culture and our friends back home too have read Laurie's book and loved Laurie's book and they just they don't understand America right now and its current incarnation and yeah. again hopefully in a couple of months we're going to change that but we'll yeah. see now this book is written in such an immediate fashion you have written other books in the first person but this book has a certain immediacy about it and a certain narrative thrust that, I mean, you just can't put the book down. Will you consciously... <laughs> Says my husband. No, no, no. Well, I think it's, it's not just me. Lots of, lots of press. I yeah. was a bestseller back home in Canada. It's, yeah. it's got incredible uh, reviews, too. It's, it's not just me. Although yeah, I admit that I am biased, of course. Uh, but but did you consciously... And I, again, the rest of your books, too, have been, have been very compelling reads, but did you consciously try and sort of, you know, increase the tension in this book and sort of be more direct in this book than perhaps you've been in past books? Yeah, I, you know, my, I guess my, my purpose um, was unique in writing this book. My intentions were somewhat unique. Uh, all of my other, my other novels um, have in some ways been emotional reactions as well, but this one was you know, maybe a little bit of a, a warning cry even. Um, so yes, it did have this kind of urgency for me. And when I started writing it, I was incredibly cynical. And I, all of these trigger events, all of the changes, um, as you just said, you're, you're seeing this, this rise of people who care and are they're angry, they're protesting, they're resisting, they're objecting, all of the things that lead to change. And so this year, I, I have hope. 2020, I have hope. Strange thing to say. That's great. That's great. Let's hope it's borne out. <laughs> Thank you both so much. That was such a good conversation. I, was it good? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I was actually thinking a lot about um, this other YA well, not that your book is necessarily YA. But That's okay. A, a YA novel that came out last year called Pet by Akwayake Amezi. Oh. Um, and for, for our listeners, I recommend this book as well. Uh, I think it would pair very nicely with, with Lori's book because it's also about um, a young person recognizing that something is wrong in their community and deciding to take action to change it. It's a little bit more supernatural yeah. Um, but I think coming from a very similar place. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah. So a lot of writers, <laughs> a lot of artists are coming from these days too, yeah. as a sort of just blow back to obviously the political uh, yeah. scenario the, that we're living through. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think all the art that's been coming out in the last couple of years has been, has been very um, focused, you know, yes. determined. Yes. Um, and, and, and interestingly, everybody is kind of writing speculative fiction right now whether they want to or not, because the world for the first time is so incredibly uncertain. What yeah. does it look 
What does six months from now look like? Are we shaking hands yet? When we write a book, what, what do we describe? Or do we describe the world we're living, the world we hope to live in, the uh, predicting a future? It's a challenge, yeah. And certainly when we're, I mean, Laurie and I work in, in, in film as well, and, and you're constantly going, how do we see, is every film in the future going to have masked actors <laughs> or in the background? Or like, how do we express that and show that and yet not limit our dramatic possibilities? Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. The, the reality feels more speculative than, than the art yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, hopefully again, there'll be some sort of, um, 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 leveling out this fall and we'll, we'll all sort of, you know, take a turn the page. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Lori, I think what you were saying about, um, about hope for, you know, kind of this, this major change, I mm -hmm. think that's what, that's what we're all hoping for right now. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm interested to see what will happen. And I'm also interested to see what our customers think of your book. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing it with them. And um, if, if you all are, are listening, you can also hear another excerpt from the book on our Instagram TV that should be going up shortly. Um, so you can get another little taste and uh, we hope you check it out. So the book is This Little Light. You can order it at skylightbooks.com. Um, Lori and Mylon, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, giving us that little, that little introduction and, and <laughs> lovely talk. So thank you. Thank you so much again for hosting us. Thank thanks, you, Maddie. Maddie. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, listeners. Um, we'll see you back here in a couple of days for the next episode. Thanks for listening and uh, take care out there. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.